So 1020, it's Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 31. On the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room? Where Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one of you who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if I fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Thanks, Naomi. And uh, let me say welcome as well. Good morning. Uh, my name is also Johnny. Great to, to have you with us. Um, I think we're the only two Johnnies. There was loads of Johnnies that used to be in this church, but um, there's only two left, is there, pretty much? So, yeah. And a John. Yeah. Yeah, a very important John. Um, let me pray, and then we're going to spend a bit of time um, thinking about uh, that, that part of Mark. We're working through this story of Mark. He's, he's retelling the story of Jesus' life. And so um, you've kind of joined us, if you're here today, partway through the story. Uh, but we'll look into that together. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the chance to come together today, a, a good day to come and celebrate fa- family and friends and church family of Miles, uh, to celebrate uh, what you have done in his life and, uh, and his baptism today. Uh, but Lord, as we come to celebrate that, we also recognize that, um, that we want to uh, acknowledge where we each are before you. And Lord, in a room like this, there'll be many people in many different places. Some might even wonder if you are there and you're real. Some might have a faith in you, but it is waning and weak and they're not sure and they're beset with doubts. Some may be hurting and in pain. Lord, you know each of us. 
You know what's going on for us. We pray. I pray that you would be at work in us through your word, by the power of your spirit, that we may see your son and know what to do in response. Amen. So, um, even if you've only been with us this morning, you've probably already got the idea that we're a church that likes to eat food together. Um, so we have this course that we do that we want to help people to think about God and other stuff. And we basically, let's do it around food. People like food and we like enjoying food together, so we do that. And if you stick around for any amount of time, you'll see pretty much anything we do will include food. We enjoy sharing food together. We eat together whenever we can. And that's because sharing a meal is not just like this process of kind of filling your stomach and getting some energy and, you know, just kind of, uh, right, need to get from A to B, get some food in. But no, when you share a meal, when you share food with people or drink with people, then, then you're sharing friendship. You're connecting, you're talking, you're sharing yourself, you're getting to know them. You're sometimes serving, you're learning and loving. That's, that's a role that food and drink pretty much plays in all cultures around the world in different ways throughout history. A meal is nearly always a way of establishing a relationship. And, and today's reading, it would be really helpful if you did keep it open. If you grab one of these red Bibles, it's page 1020. And I'd love it if you could just keep it open and keep looking at it as we go through. It is from, from Mark's story of Jesus' life. And it's all about a meal. It's a description of the greatest and the most significant meal of all time. And listen, we didn't get to be at this meal, but it is a meal that really happens. And through Mark retelling it to us and telling us what happens... It offers an invitation to us, if only we'll accept it. Well, we'll see, hopefully, as I go through what that invitation is. Well, actually, here it is straight away, but we'll explain it in more detail. Um, The invitation is this. Jesus offers himself for us. You see, this meal, Jesus and his friends, 2,000 years ago, are in Jerusalem for the Jewish Passover festival. And at this point, they've been celebrating it for about 1,500 years, every year. And the city is kind of buzzing and it's alive with the crowds who have come to celebrate the Passover. And you see, the Passover is this meal all about a sacrifice that frees people. It's a sacrifice that frees people into this relationship with God. It's a sacrifice that makes people good with God. And the Passover story, the first Passover... Three and a half thousand years ago is recorded in the Bible book of Exodus. Uh, And it's the story of God rescuing Israel, who are his people, from Egypt, where they're in slavery under Pharaoh. And God rescuing them and, and establishing them and making them his people as a nation. And so every year since then, they've celebrated this, this, cap, uh, this festival in the capital with this ritual meal at the heart where they celebrate this ancient Passover event. But, but in Mark's story of Jesus' life, this is also a really significant moment that we're building to. You see, Jesus has been talking in the story before this about going to Jerusalem for a long time. And when he's been talking about going to Jerusalem, he's been saying to his friends, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going there to die. And Jesus now knows that now that that moment is very close. Here they are in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And so for Jesus, what we need to see is this is no ordinary Passover meal. Now, in fact, 
um, this has become known as the Last Supper. You might have heard, heard that referred to sometimes. That is because this is the last meal that Jesus eats before he goes to die on the cross. And what we see, is, as Mark retells the story, is that Jesus is working behind the scenes to make this Passover meal ready. So there in, in verse 13, it's the bold little um, 13 on the left-hand column there, um, Mark tells us that Jesus sends two of his mates off into the city. They're, they're staying kind of just outside the city. And, and he says, go and find uh, a guest room for us to go and have this Passover meal in. It, it, it's thought in church history, it said that this was Mark's house. Mark is a young boy at this point, growing up in, in his home, and this is his house that they find to have the meal in. Uh, and these disciples go off, and they find the location, and they go and prepare the food and, and get, get everything ready for the, for the good meal in the evening. You see, Jesus is taking control uh, and making the preparations because he's got something very important that he wants to show his friends. This meal is going to be something that is going to explain to them what he has come to do. And indeed, who he is. It's going to explain to them what his death is about. What it offers to them. One of you could just think for a moment yourself how you would explain the death of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that that's an event that kind of probably we all know about in some way or at least have a thought on. You might think, well, it, it was a tragedy. There was this good religious leader and he kind of fell short of, 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 of the brutal authorities and ended up in a, in a bloody death. You might say, actually, it's irrelevant. It's just another death in history. There's been millions and billions of deaths since. It's no different. Or some might say, well, it's a vi- the ultimate victory for pa- pacifism. You know, a, a pacifist going willingly to his death against brutal murderers. Well, what I want us to see is I want to see what Mark shows us, what Jesus says this meal signifies about his death. It comes to mealtime, uh, verse 17 there, um, in, in the evening, and Jesus and his friends are reclining on these kind of low couches, as they did back then, round this low table in this upper room. Uh, and it's a typical Passover meal that they're celebrating. Now, um, I mean, has anyone here ever actually been to a Passover meal? Oh, someone has, wow. Oh, two, two people have. Okay, um, I'm impressed that two have. I thought no one would have done it. I haven't. So probably you're not very familiar with what happens at a Passover meal. Um, the, the, a few, few people here might be. But listen, everything is loaded with symbolism. So, so at this meal, you eat these flatbreads, like these kind of Middle Eastern flatbreads. And the reason you eat that is because on the original Passover, they didn't have time to put the yeast into the dough to, and, and give it time to, to, to rise, the bread to rise, because they had to kind of literally leave Egypt in the middle of the night. So you, you eat these flatbreads reminding you of kind of the, the urgency and the haste with which it happens. You have these bitter herbs that, 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 that you taste in the meal, and, and they remind you of the bitterness of the slavery and the suffering in Egypt. They have these kind of stewed um, Fruits, this kind of orangey, ready kind of uh, stewed fruits, which remind them of the bricks that they made in their slave labor camps. And then, and then at the heart of, of the meal, in the, in the middle of the table, is this lamb, this, this sacrificial lamb, roasted. The, the sacrifice that died on behalf of each household, saving them from God's judgment. And so there's all of these kind of different symbolic elements. And then some of the things that they do through the evening are also symbolic. There's blessings that are said and prayers and, and psalms that are sung. 
And there's a particular way that this meal goes. It's not just a eating food, it's a ritual. It's teaching people things. In fact, the whole meal is centred on these four promises of God that were given at the original Passover. And, and this is from the Bible here in, in Exodus where it tells that story. I've put them in red, but you probably can't see them. But there's four promises there. Let, let me read this to you and we'll see if we can spot them. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is God speaking, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you. That means to, to buy you back to be mine. With an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your gods. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. There, there's these four promises that God is going to rescue his people. That they would be freed by God's that he's going to redeem them to be uh, his own people and that they're going to enjoy this renewed relationship with God. And so what would happen in this Passover meal is throughout the meal, uh, at different points, the, the person who's, who's hosting the meal, and here it's Jesus, would, would raise a cup of, of wine. And at four different points, it would be one of each of these promises of God that, that the host would remind people and teach people about. And they would celebrate together. It would be like a, a, a toast to God and his promises and his faithfulness. And so you see that this Passover meal, it's more than just a meal of friends. It's more than just kind of a ritual that a group of uh, a, a nation joins together. But it's like they're having a meal with God. It's like people are sat at the table enjoying a meal with God, getting to know God and not God them. Celebrate, celebrate and being friends with the God who made us. In some ways, each Passover, they kind of had this fresh experience of God's rescue, of his redemption, of them being his people, of them being under his protection and his favour. <clears throat> and so when it comes to, to, to the third cup, that's near the end of the meal, where they're kind of finishing off their food. Traditionally, the, the third cup would be raised. Uh, and as Jesus does that here, he goes way off script. That's what Mark shows us. He gives the whole thing this totally new meaning. You see, the third cup is, is the cup that celebrates God redeeming his people by power through acts of judgment. So it's God's, God's redemption, God's, God's enacting his rescue. And this is the heart of the Passover. Because what happens in the Passover is God frees his people from Egypt. He does it by the angel of death coming in judgment over the land of Egypt. And as, as God's judgment falls on, on all people in the land, the firstborn son in each home, you've probably heard the story, it's famous, dies under God's judgment. But in the homes where a lamb has been sacrificed and the blood is painted above the doorframe, well, there's already been a death in that house, so death does not need to come again. And so in those homes, there is no death of the firstborn, they are safe. The lamb has already died in place. And so Jesus is raising this third cup to uh, celebrate and remember that particular event and remind people of it. Now look down at verse 22 there in our right-hand column on page 1020. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, <clears throat> the third cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. 
and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. So at this point in the meal, Jesus breaks this bread and he offers it to his friends saying, this is my body, this is me. Luke records the, the, the same events and he, says, he said, uh, also says, given for you. And, and he takes the cup, which reminds them of, of, of the sacrifice of the lamb and, and, and everything that happened at Passover. And he says, this is my blood. My blood of the covenant, or, or the footnote says, the new covenant, which is poured out for many. See, at the heart of this ritual meal, Jesus says, this is all about me. This is all about me. That I'm at the heart of this Passover festival. Now that is shocking, right? I think Jews for 1,500 years have been celebrating this meal. And this guy, this Jewish guy, comes up and says, listen, this is, this is all about me. It's all pointing to me. This is what's going to happen tomorrow. This is Jesus describing himself as the sacrificial lamb. That my body is going to be broken and my blood is going to be poured out for many, he says. Now listen, he's, he's not speaking literally. You just need to be clear about that. He, he's using this imagery. That, 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 that they know it's imagery because they've been doing it for 1,500 years. He's using the imagery to powerfully depict the meaning and the purpose of his death. You see, I asked you what you think about the death of Jesus, how you explain it. Well, this is how Jesus understands it himself, even before he's died. He understands his death as the ultimate sacrifice. As the sacrificial lamb. As the ultimate Passover, the fulfillment of these things that they've been looking forward to. You see, God's powerful redemption of his people is not achieved by thousands upon thousands of lambs being slaughtered in the temple or sacrificed in ancient Egypt. No, God's redemption, his winning, buying people back is achieved by one sacrifice of his son, his only son. That's why Jesus' cousin, even earlier than this, says when he sees Jesus, look, he's the lamb of God, he says, who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, it's all a matter of perspective, whether we really understand something properly and, and know how to respond. Let me try and, um, try and illustrate that. Let's say you're, you're heading down to Greg's for, for a cheeky sausage roll or something, and um, as too many people in the gate church do, and pretty much that shop is living off us, but that's fine. Um, and you're going down towards Bristol Road. As you're kind of going down there, you turn and you see this man running out in the middle of that busy road in front of a bus that's going down at 40 miles an hour. And the bus hits the man. And as he would at that speed, he's knocked down and he's dead in an instant and you see it. And you think, what an absolute tragedy. What was the guy doing? How foolish, did he not check to see? Why did he run out into the road? Didn't he see it coming? What a, what a waste of his life. You think, that's just a, just a tragedy. That, that, but then you, you, you go to Greg's and, and you're catching up with a friend and, and you see your friend in Greg's and, um, and, and, and your friend says, did you just see what happened out on the road? You say, yeah, I know, it's terrible, isn't it? What, what an absolute tragedy, such a, a pointless thing. The guy could have avoided it and it, 
it's a terrible thing to happen. Just think, just that was pointless. What a waste of life. Your friend said, wait, wait did, you not, did you not see? Because your, your friend was on the other side of the road. So they had a slightly different perspective to you. And, and the thing that you missed was the little child that was stood in the middle of the road. The thing that you didn't see was that the reason the man ran into the road was to, to, to push the child out of the way of the bus. And as he did so, the bus took him, but the child was safe. And you see, when you suddenly see it from that new perspective, you don't say things like, that was a waste, or that was a tragedy, or what a fool. You say, wow. Wow. Wow, that, that was an amazing thing to do. That was, that was a sacrifice. That, 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 was, that was out of the ordinary. And you're going to think very differently about that man with that new perspective, aren't you? Now listen, it's possible to push that analogy way too far. Read it for what it is. And in particular, I am not saying that that Jesus is in any way out of control of events or a victim to forces above him. We've seen in Mark already and we see it in the coming weeks. That is not the case. We even see it today in our passage. But it does show us that having the right perspective is very, very important to knowing how to respond rightly to something. Seeing it rightly. And Jesus wants us to have this perspective. He uses this Passover meal and he says this is a signpost to the very purpose, the very reason for my death. This is not a tragedy. This is not irrelevant. This is not a trick. No, this is the truer and the greater Passover. This is a rescue. This is me sacrificing myself to rescue people, to offer them new life. This is me coming to free people from oppression. This is me coming to buy people back to redeem them, to bring them back into relationship with the God who made them, to bring us back into God's loving care. See, if you like, we could say that Jesus' death on the cross on that Good Friday, that is like the meal that he lays out for the souls of of people. His body broken, his blood poured out for us and our souls. Sure, I know we're not enslaved in Egypt. It's a different story, isn't it? But the Bible does say we're enslaved. Do you know that? It says we're enslaved to sin and to death. And that is quite, quite simply just a way of life, rejecting God, the God who made us, the God who knows what true freedom and what true life is for us, and said, no thanks, God. And living that way of life leads to a living and an eternal experience of death. And we're enslaved, we're trapped in that. And that is a slavery that every one of us needs to be set free from. It's a jail that we need to be broken out of from the outside, from someone who has true life, from someone who is freely and truly alive, who is in that relationship with God. And so when Jesus says, my blood is the blood of the covenant or the new covenant, he's he's offering us this unbreakable relationship with God this restoration of our relationship with the God who made us and the God who loves us. He's offering us freedom. He's offering us new life. It's exactly what Jesus is offering to every single one of us here today. Elsewhere in the Bible, it describes these ideas like this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, if you feel unworthy, if you feel too dirty, like you've done too much wrong, think if only, if only you knew where I'd been, what I'd done, what had happened. You know this isn't for me. I want to say, yes, this is for you. Jesus' offer of himself is for you. And so the question that really comes from this is, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? Because what's clear uh, in in, in this story that Mark tells is that Jesus wants people to come to this meal, and and he wants them to come and experience this meal and, and what it shows them about him. I think a better name for this meal, rather than the Last Supper, is to call it the First Supper. And that's because Jesus here is saying, Passover is done. Something newer and better is here. Something newer and better is here to celebrate God's rescue and to receive. And so Jesus, as the church has understood it, gives this as a new meal to his people. And we read about it elsewhere in the Bible. And this is what it's been called at various points. We call it the Lord's Supper here. Some people call it communion or Eucharist, but it's this new meal that is given to the church to celebrate and remember Jesus' sacrificial death. And when that is taken and when that is participated in and received with faith in Jesus and in his death, then what Christians have is they have this, a bit like the Passover celebration was, we have this kind of lived experience, this real tangible experience of the new life that we have with God, of being friends with God. It's a meal with God. We have a, a tangible, tasteable experience of our freedom from sin and death. We have an experience of God's fatherly care and his rescue. It's why we, we love celebrating the Lord's Supper together as a church. It's why we try and do it most of the time. We're not doing it today, even though we're talking about it because of the baptism. But it's so important to us as a church. And you know what it does? It helps Christians never forget the basis on which we come to God. It's not by our own efforts or our own goodness, but it's by the sacrifice of another giving us what we could not get ourselves. And we just come empty-handed and receive. It's a really good way to remember that and to remind ourselves of that. But you see who's invited to this meal that Mark records, this last Passover meal? It's hardly like a lit... If it's the greatest meal in history, you'd expect a better guest list than this, wouldn't you? You've got Jesus, and you've got this kind of ragtag, motley crew of his friends and followers. And quite frankly, who needs, friend, who needs enemies when you've got friends like these, right? Do you see what's going on over this meal? And we've got Judas. Again, like, just famous, isn't he? I don't think we need to say much about him in some senses. We saw last week he's already scheming to betray Jesus and hand him over. And down here in verse 18, there's this kind of properly awkward moment because it's clear that Jesus knows. So Judas has kind of been scheming in the background and suddenly he's like really quite publicly outed in some senses. You see, even this betrayal of Judas isn't outside of God's plan. Mark shows us here. Yes, Judas is responsible. But there's something truer going on that God is doing here. And in this conversation, it follows in verse 18, Jesus here is lovingly warning Judas. I think he's beckoning him back. I think he's giving him a way out. Judas, you could stop this now. But Judas won't listen. 
He bluffs his way to denial. Verse 19 of the other disciples, surely not me, Jesus. I, I, I couldn't betray you. Of course he knows he's going to. Actually, John's account of this meal tells us that soon after Judas leaves the meal and goes straight to betray Jesus. You see, ultimately, Judas rejects Jesus and his offer. Ultimately, he says, thanks, but no thanks, Jesus, not for me. And he walks away. We can reject it too, you know. We can. I'm okay, thanks, Jesus. No problem. I'm just going to walk away now. But also, for those of us who are Christians, there's times in our lives where we set ourselves towards a course of action that is destructive, that's just wrong, that's spiritually dangerous to us. Maybe a bit like Judas is doing here. And we see something that in God, in his grace, warns us, pursues us, puts a roadblock in our way or gives us a way out if only we will respond and listen. I had such a clear experience of it in my life. I was mucking around with just kind of this party lifestyle and this destructive relationship with a girlfriend. And just there's a few moments where I just saw God was just hemming me in, warning me, putting some barriers in the way. In his grace, he was saying, don't go there, don't do that, come back. And he kept me from myself, from so much damage, pain and heartache that I was heading straight towards. So it might be, if you're a Christian, if you're part of our church today, God even now is hemming you and he's warning you, speaking to your conscience. I want to say, listen and respond. Don't ignore that. Don't, don't say thanks, but no thanks. If he's pursuing you, Come back. That's Judas, but it's not as if the rest of the guy, you know, it's not as if they're any better, really, is it? I mean, okay, they don't outright betray him like Judas does, but they're not friends who are loyal to Jesus to the end. And that's right, they all end up rejecting him in one way or another. These are his tightest friends. So it's there in verse 27. They go for like this after-dinner walk out of the city into the hills. Uh, and Jesus says, uh, warns them. He says, you are going to fall away. You're going you're to bail on me. And again, they, den- they deny it, all of them. No, Jesus, I'm not going to let you down. I'm going to be there for you. Johnny read it for us earlier. Peter's kind of leading the charge. Jesus, I'm your man. I will die for you, Jesus. I mean, he really believes it, doesn't he? I'm going to die for you. But Jesus says, before this very night is out, before the sun even comes up, Peter, you will deny me three times to save your skin. We're going we're gonna to see that in a couple of weeks. Incidentally, just this is a side note, I think stuff like this is a compelling case for the truth and the accuracy of what we read in the Bible. Peter is Mark's main source for this story. Peter looks like the biggest idiot you could ever wish to read about. I think that's a compelling case. When he's the main source, he does not write himself in here as the hero. But this stuff is true and not made up. But we can talk about that later if you want. But more importantly, this is very reassuring for me. Very reassuring. Just how bad friends Jesus' mates are. Just how spectacularly they get it wrong, right? 
That's kind of, that's relatable, is it not? As people, we're so good at making resolutions, at making promises, at at saying, yeah, I'm going to do this, and then just totally failing to follow through. Come on, I'm sure we can all relate to that. It's notorious, isn't it, with our New Year's resolutions. Everyone's just waiting until, I don't know, the 10th of January, and they're broken or something. But what about when it's a bit more serious? What about when it's that addiction that you've resolved to stop and fight again, but it just keeps coming back, uh, and you're high again, or you're on that porn site again, uh, and you just can't seem to get beyond it? Or or those marriage vows that you so mean with every fibre of your being on your wedding day. You couldn't mean it more. And yet they're in absolute tatters a decade later by your unfaithfulness and your adultery. It's not you didn't mean it when you said them on your wedding day. But it's something where we just struggle to follow through on our promises, isn't it? Or perhaps more serious still, we promise stuff to God. I'll die for you. We just don't keep it. We can't. I'll do this for you, God. I'll do that for you. Jesus, you're worth everything. I'll give you my whole life. And then we look at our life and we're just keeping it all to ourselves. You see, as people, we stumble and we trip. So much of our wrongs are not intentional and are not deliberate. But doesn't that just show how conflicted we are? We so want to do good and yet we find ourselves doing wrong and failing to do what is right. Let me say this directly. But hopefully, humbly, you are going to fail. You will. What Miles is not saying today is that his life is all sorted and he's now perfect and he's got it licked and, right? You're not saying that, are you? No. Miles will fail. He will continue to fail. Baptism is not saying I've made it. In some sense, it's saying I'm starting out. Actually, that's exactly why Jesus invites us to this meal for our souls. It's exactly why he is the sacrifice, because we do fail. It's exactly the heart of the point. And this gives me, personally, such assurance. It gives me such hope when, again, I'm confronted by my own failings. Then, when I'm despairing of them. What, again, can you not get over this? Well, when Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for my sins. Every single one of them was in the future. He saw them all coming. So him dying for my, my sins, past, present and future. Well, he isn't caught out by me and my weakness. He isn't surprised by my sin. He isn't like, oh no, actually, I kind of, yeah, you've gone over the limit now. Totaled out. No, Jesus is a sacrifice once for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That gives me hope, that gives me assurance, that gives me peace, even when I continue to fail. See, we've got to be careful not to think too highly of ourselves, lest we trip ourselves up in our own pride. You might have heard this, people who struggle with alcohol addiction. Um, Part of the, the, the program and the way to help them is that they're encouraged to think of themselves as recovering alcoholics and to kind of always think of themselves in, in those terms. So, so they're never totally free 
free from the threat of addiction, no matter how long they've been sober, even if, it, even if it was decades since they touched a drink. They kind of need to be aware of the threat and the danger. Well, listen, I want to suggest that Christians, we ought to think of ourselves as recovering sinners. No matter how many victories God has given you, no matter how many progress you have made, no matter how much his blessing in your life where he has cleaned you up and turned your heart around and changed things in, in your life, we are never free and we never graduate beyond the scourge of sin. We're never free from the threat of falling. We ought not think we are something when we are not. And part of how, how we equip ourselves to be safe is by realizing, yeah, I'm a recovering sinner. I'm in the process of recovery. You see, the Christian faith is not full of heroes. It's a faith that is full of failures. This church is full of failures. There is one hero, and it's Jesus. It's the one who gave himself, who is the sacrifice for us all. But the rest of us are failures. So if you're a failure, you'll fit right in in this church. You'll be right at home here. We disown him in all sorts of ways all the time. But the greater truth is he will never disown us if we're his people. The Bible describes it like this. It says we're like sheep that go astray. And then Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd who comes and lays down his life for the sheep. Now listen, that is the good news of Christianity. That is the good news of Miles' life. That's what we celebrate in baptism today. Our God offered himself as a sacrifice in the person of Jesus to rescue us, to free us, to liberate us, to bring us back under his care, to bring us back into everlasting relationship with him. That is the offer that is extended in this meal in Mark 14, and it's the offer that is extended to you today. The question for each of us to ask is what we're going to do about it, how are we going to respond? Let's pray.